Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. This is episode 32, Theodosius and Theocracy. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Jennifer, Bree, and Joe for signing up already. Okay, where do we leave off? In 388, Magnus Maximus was dead. Valentinian II and Theodosius I were emperors of the Roman Empire. Britannia was probably not initially sapped of its defenders, but it almost certainly was heavily taxed towards the end, and following the defeat of Maximus, it might have lost many of its defenders thanks to his failed campaign into Italy. Did that make sense to you? What I'm getting at here is that the complaint about Maximus was that he looted the island of soldiers right from day one, which I think is unfair and almost certainly untrue. But... His failed campaign into Italy might have caused a reduction in troop numbers, though we can't be sure whether that actually happened or what the exact numbers might have been since we don't know the actual troop dispositions. So anyway, the point is, Britannia might have been a little short on soldiers at the moment. Not to mention that everyone was probably holding their breath waiting to see if Emperor Theodosius would send someone like Paulus Catena to exact revenge upon the rebellious province. But at least this time, there wouldn't be religious reprisals. We know this because Maximus was a Catholic, and so was Theodosius. So, you know, look on the bright side, I suppose. And as a consequence of their religious unity, actually, the power of the church continued to grow in Britannia. In fact, later on, Bishop Ambrose will become an advisor to Theodosius, though it seems that this actually caused the emperor some irritation. So anyway, the pendulum was clearly swinging towards Christianity at this point. Meanwhile, Pelagius, do you remember him? Uh, We mentioned him earlier. Pelagius was the British monk who founded Pelagianism. Well, he was in the Mediterranean and occasionally in Rome itself, and he was urging the religious community to follow a different path. It's been argued that his alternative path shared some things in common with Druidism, actually. Think about that. At our current spot in history, there's a British monk who is traveling around and might be pushing the church to be a little more druidic. This, by the way, is part of what I love about British history. You've got British legions marching to Rome and telling Commodus to shape up or ship out. You've got British usurpers claiming to restore the true empire. You've got monks trying to get the church to be a little more traditionally British. Our history is filled with people who were not content with the status quo and felt that the world could benefit from being a little more British. And that attitude has really kind of stuck around. So how could you not love these stories? So anyway, Pelagius is doing his thing in Rome and actually will later come into direct conflict with St. Augustine. Actually, are you starting to see what I mean? I mean, he's going into direct conflict with St. Augustine. Our history is filled with fearless men and women kicking ass and taking names. It's awesome. And actually, as a little bit of a tangent, this whole Pelagianism thing, well, it actually isn't too surprising that a heresy involving pagan ideas started in Britannia. While there were social and financial incentives to convert, you can't just erase centuries of religion. And while Druidism has been outlawed for quite some time by this point in our story, 
it doesn't mean that the Britons weren't finding ways to continue to practice. History is filled with examples of people who were forced to convert and who just found ways to fit their old religion into the new one, usually with a bunch of name changes and whatnot. So Britannia, which was most likely the heart of Druidism, probably found ways to keep the ideas alive any way it could. And while there might have been strong discussions of Christian versus pagan in the ecclesiastical upper class of Rome, in our far-flung province, many archaeological digs and records seem to indicate that there is basically a blending of pagan and Christian ideals. This sort of behavior, by the way, is nothing new, and it still happens today. For example, in Thailand, you can find Buddhist households that have animist accents, such as spirit houses in them. Anyway, the point is that as it was far from the highly political and rigid centers of the religion, Britannia was a breeding ground for new ways of thinking about Christianity, and that allowed the old ways to sneak back in. So basically what I'm getting at here is that it shouldn't surprise anyone that Pelagianism was founded by a British monk, nor should it surprise anyone that it became popular in that province. And here's a fun fact about this British upstart. Pelagius was sent to Rome by his parents to study law, not religion. They certainly didn't send him there to become a monk. He was supposed to be a pagan lawyer or politician. But once he was in Rome, he converted to Christianity and set himself on a different path. I wish we had a record of what his parents thought about that change, whether they were proud or whether they regretted sending him there in the first place. But the fact that he was a convert does shed some light on why some of his religious philosophies appear to have been colored by concepts from older religions. Anyway, moving on. Another thing that was happening around now was an economic collapse in Britannia. Until now, we've been seeing the distribution of imperial coinage pretty regularly through the province. But starting at around 379, things began to slow down. And now, a decade later, it's clear that this wasn't just a fluke or, you know, a recession. Something was happening to the economy in Britannia. And in fact, it'll take less than 20 years for all importation of coinage to halt entirely on the island. Britannia was in the middle of an economic collapse, which isn't too surprising. Rome itself was collapsing. In the middle of all this unrest, Gildas tells us that the Picts and Scots repeatedly attacked Britannia. So if you were living in the north, life during this period would have been hard and brutal. Now the Picts and Scots would have had very little reason to penetrate into the lowlands of the south. There was plenty of wealth to be had right there on their doorstep, such as in York. So things on the island were tough. And actually we're seeing Irish raids in remote coastal areas of Wales as well, which could be a result of a weakening military in the area. Meanwhile, it looks like Port Chester in the south probably lost its garrison at around this time as well. Things in Britannia are not looking good. So after a while, according to Gildas, Britannia promised to submit to Theodosius in exchange for help with the Picts, the Scots, and the Irish. The emperor responded by sending Britannia a legion via sea, which landed and then drove the raiders out of the Romano-British territories. This tells us a couple things. First, it tells us about the relative weakness of the defenses on the island, considering that a detachment of the emperor's forces could quickly get rid of the barbarian problem. But secondly, it tells us that Britannia was still rebellious, 
regardless of the fact that Maximus was dead. The Romano-Britons didn't immediately accept Roman rule, but instead, if Gildas is to be believed, they stuck it out on their own until they simply couldn't cope with the raids and had to beg for help. I mean, it's starting to look like they really just don't want to be part of the Roman Empire. And to look at it another way, Theodosius might have lucked out here with this whole Pictish-Irish-Scottish problem. After all, taking a rebellious Britannia had repeatedly proven to be rather difficult. So having something to bargain with enabled Theodosius to avoid a potentially costly and almost certainly very bloody war. And actually, Theodosius just didn't have the time or energy for another war like that. After all, the Eastern Empire had already lost a tremendous amount of men at Adrianople, and on top of that, he still had a very rowdy eastern flank. He needed the West to be calm, and he would have preferred that the West be a stable for barbarian mercenary armies, which were becoming very common. And these mercenary armies were fairly new for the Empire. Unlike the auxiliary units, which we spoke about months ago, who were relatively small in number and served under Roman officers, these mercenary armies were basically entire barbarian forces with their own leadership that fought alongside the Roman army but weren't really part of the Roman army. They were independent. You can see what a colossal mistake Theodosius and others were making here, right? Now why do I keep talking about Theodosius and not Valentinian II? Wasn't Valentinian the emperor of the West? Well, yeah. Sort of. But it's pretty clear that Theodosius was running the show. Theodosius wasn't too confident in his 17-year-old counterpart, so he packed Valentinian's government with his own men and largely made Valentinian irrelevant. So there you go. That's why we're talking about Theodosius. And actually, of interest to us, Theodosius wanted Britannia, now that it was back within the empire, to have first-rate administrators. He felt that having a competent and effective administration on the island was the best way to keep it loyal. That should tell you something about perceptions within the imperial house and how they looked upon the island. Theodosius was ruling all the way from Constantinople, the eastern capital, far from Britannia. And yet he still felt that Britannia was an important province that needed to be retained and was worth sending some of his best administrators to. But Theodosius wasn't just thinking loving thoughts about Britannia, or more likely iron-fisted thoughts. He was also talking a lot with Bishop Ambrose at around this time. Now we do have records that indicate that he and Ambrose didn't entirely see eye to eye, but regardless of that fact, it seems that Ambrose generally got the emperor to do what he wanted. And what he wanted to do was generally pretty extreme. Take for example the new laws that were put into place in 391. All throughout the empire, it was now illegal to conduct sacrifices, even when those sacrifices were conducted in private. Imagine the effect that that would have on the pagans. Not to mention that it was sort of an odd hypocrisy in there. I mean, I'm no biblical scholar, but I did go to Catholic school, and I seem to remember quite a few sacrifices in the Bible. Bulls, calves, you name it. I mean, hell, didn't Abraham nearly sacrifice his own son at one point? I'm just saying. Anyway, no sacrifices anywhere in the empire. Period. Also, all temples were ordered closed. And just to make sure that this time it was carried out, remember how things were lax in Britannia with earlier religious rules thanks to guys like Constantius? 
Well, if you fail to enforce the law this time, and it was your job to enforce it, you get hit with a huge fine. So these rules were definitely going to be enforced this time. Fantastic. But he wasn't done yet. In 392, Theodosius, once again under the influence of Ambrose, made it illegal to worship or revere any pagan gods, spirits, or what have you. Again, this extended into your own home. And even the traditional ways of honoring ancient beliefs, such as incense, were banned. Imagine that, college students. No Nag Champa in your dorm room. Imagine the impact that would have on your social life. Anyway, so the extremism that we saw in Magnus Maximus has gone from the actions of a rogue emperor to basically, this is just what goes on in the empire now. Things are going to be extreme. Extremism is now the new normal. Theodosius missed his chance to turn things around and make the empire more tolerant and less fear-based, and instead went the other way. Great job, stick. Anyway, so that's a whole bunch of Roman history. So what's been going on in the West during this time? Well, we don't have many specific reports on just Britannia, so we'll have to make do with, you know, what was going on in the West in general. Well, remember Valentinian II? Like I mentioned earlier, he wasn't really trusted by Theodosius, so he was placed under the care of a man by the name of Flavius Arbogastes, also known as just Arbogast. This guy was a Frankish general whom Theodosius trusted, and actually he was the head honcho for the military in the West, and answerable only to Theodosius himself. So Valentinian was placed under his care. But it's 392, right? That means that Valentinian is about 21 years old. Why the hell is he still under the control of this Frankish general? Well, the first thought that jumps to mind is that Theodosius doesn't trust him, and he rather enjoys running the empire. Thank you very much. I mean, right now, the guy pulling the strings in the West is answerable only to Theodosius. So basically, Theodosius can run the whole show. If Valentinian ruled in his own right, all that would end. Why on earth would he want to lose all that power? But here's another aspect to consider. A military aspect. Think about the long view of Roman history. It's been a very long time since senators and politicians were powerful in Rome, hasn't it? Even if you were a politician, you still needed to be a warrior. If you wanted to be seen as powerful, successful, or even just legitimate, you really needed to be a great general. And do I even need to bring up the bloody history with all the Praetorian prefects? Power has been steadily concentrating not only into the imperial house, but also amongst the military. Should it surprise us that eventually the military would want to flex its muscles and have more direct power? Probably not. So despite Valentinian's age, lineage, and title, he was basically a useless figurehead. Arbogast was the one who was really running the show in the West. And once again, we're seeing the issue that the Empire ran into with its barbarian policy. Alright, I might have lost some of you there, so let's recap. Theodosius is running the East and commanding Arbogast, and in turn, Arbogast and his mercenaries are ruling the West, and Valentinian is... uh... taking walks? I don't know what he was doing with his time, but it certainly wasn't ruling. You know, he was probably just being bullied, or, you know, finding ways to avoid being bullied. My guess is that's generally what his day would look like. 
So basically, Theodosius was still the emperor of everything. It's a pretty good gig if you can get it. But it's got to be pretty depressing if you're Valentinian. Well, on May 15th, 392, Valentinian was found hanging in his apartments. Did Arbogast kill him? I mean, he was under Arbogast's care. Did Arbogast's Frankish mercenaries kill him? Was it suicide? We'll never know. But even if it was suicide, Arbogast quickly realized that it was only a matter of time before the accusations of murder would be leveled against him. Not to mention that his pretty excellent gig as the proxy emperor of the West was over. Theodosius would probably give the West to one of his sons, and Arbogast would be back to just being a general. And that's if he was lucky enough to avoid being executed for murder. And let's face it, everyone would assume he murdered the emperor. After all, he already had purple blood on his blade. Following the death of Maximus, remember Maximus from last week? Following the death of Maximus, Arbogast was dispatched to kill Maximus's son and heir, Victor. And Victor had already been proclaimed an Augustus. And yet that didn't stop Arbogast from killing him. So everybody knew that Arbogast was perfectly willing to kill an emperor. So let's face it, Arbogast is looking guilty as hell. Even if it was a suicide, which actually it seems entirely likely, Arbogast probably saw this and immediately said, Oh, f Oh, I'm gonna die. As far as we can tell, Arbogast really didn't want to rebel. But what else could he do? So he declared an administrator he was familiar with, Flavius Eugenius, as Emperor of the West. Notably, he didn't name himself as Emperor. But how could he? He was Frankish, he would almost certainly be accused of murdering the last emperor, and he was already famous for murdering another emperor. Eugenius, on the other hand, was Roman, and as a bonus, he wasn't behaving like Lady Macbeth. Wait a minute. We've got usurpation, a murdered Augustus, another dead Augustus who might have also been murdered, we have intrigue, we have betrayal, we have everybody getting their panties in a twist. Shouldn't there be a Praetorian Prefect involved? Well, it turns out there was. Virius Nicomachus Flavianus. He, Arbogast, and Eugenius were the engines behind this usurpation. And this usurpation was not a small one. They'd taken the West. Even Britannia. All of it was out of Theodosius' hands and now it was in theirs. And much like Carousius, Eugenius tried to avoid war with Theodosius by recognizing the authority of the East, and even naming Theodosius' elder son as an Augustus. Well, we've already seen how well that worked out for Carousius. So having attempted to soothe the waters, Eugenius and his administration tried to curry favor in the West as best as they could. For example, they repealed some of the extreme religious rules, the altar of victory was returned to the Senate, temples were rebuilt, public festivals were celebrated. This is sometimes referred to as a pagan revival in the West. But how much of an effect that had upon Britannia is unknown. Britannia was far removed from Rome, so for your average Romano-Briton, the usurpation might have not even been noticed. But my guess is that, for most of the Western continent at least, there is a fair amount of support for Eugenius and his rebellion considering the extremism of the Theodosius administration. 
But we all know how this is going to end. There's a pattern here, after all. So despite Eugenius recognizing Theodosius and his son, Theodosius didn't return the favor. And in 394, Theodosius gathered a massive army of Goths. Reach out, space. No, no, no. Not those Goths. You know, the, uh, those Goths. So he got a massive army of Goths and marched on Rome. And at the Battle of Frigidus, which was actually quite near the battlefield where Theodosius killed Maximus, he defeated the army of the West. Emperor Eugenius was summarily executed, and Arbogast and Flavianus committed suicide. It's 394, and for nearly half of Theodosius' reign, Britannia has been in rebel hands. But it was back now. He had his empire. It was united. But by January, Theodosius would be dead. Tough break. All right, before I let you go, let's have some listener mail. And this is from Liam from Brighton. He wants to know that if once we get into the Anglo-Saxon period, if I'm going to be talking about some of the laws involved in the Anglo-Saxon culture, such as trials by ordeal and whatnot. And I imagine that I will be. We're not going to get there for quite a while. Uh, This project is taking me much longer than I thought it would. Um, We're still not even out of the Romano-British period, and I was convinced that we were going to be out of the Romano-British period uh, before the end of January. So it's going to take a little while to get there. But yes, I imagine that we are going to be talking about Anglo-Saxon laws. I actually find all that stuff very interesting. Anyway, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can go ahead and email me. My email address is thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join the conversation at Facebook. We're at www.facebook.com slash britishhistory. I'm also on Twitter at, um, at britishpodcast. And we have a forum, which I've mentioned several times before. You can go to the forum. The forum is uh, www.thebritishhistorypodcast.com slash forum, where you can just go to you know, the website and then click on the forum button and go and sign up there. Anyway, I look forward to reading your questions, comments, and whatnot. And thanks for listening.